0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: My son actually broke his arm a few months ago and some complete stranger called me and said, hey, I'm with your son. He broke his arm. This is, I'm a first aid trained person. I'll stay here with him until you get here. I still don't know that guy's name, but he just went out of his way and did that. And I've just seen that happen again and again in Australia in a way that I really appreciate. Christianity is a fundamentally paradoxical beauty. The fact that I was hanging around ashrams doing goat bleating was indicating that something was missing. How do performing artists see the world? Because I'm nothing like a performing artist.
0: This is Life and Faith from CPX, I'm Simon Smart. Today we're taking an outsider's perspective on life in Australia. I always find it fascinating to listen to people from other places describe what they find here, and I think it helps us to think about what we really love about this country, the things we might be able to do better, and aspects of living here that we haven't even noticed, but are really conspicuous to someone else. Damien Cave is our guest today, and he has put his discerning journalist's eye over us, and we come out looking pretty good overall. Damien arrived here with his family in 2017 to be the New York Times Bureau Chief in Australia. And he's written a book about this experience. It's called Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American. Finding himself in a beachside suburb of Sydney, Damien decided, along with his family, to plunge into the surf lifesaving community. And what he discovered there turned out to be a really formative experience. As the title indicates, the notion of risk was a big focus of the book. And Damien Cave has much to say about Australians' attitude to risk that he found so instructive and challenging. Damien Cave, great to talk to you. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. Now, there's a real honesty in this book. I thought a lovely openness, actually, in a sense that in the process of writing this, you were coming to terms with things about not just the topic, but things about yourself as well. I found a real generosity in that.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's um for me as a journalist who's usually used to writing about other people and I try to do it with empathy. It was quite a challenge actually to figure out how to write about myself and my wife kept telling me, just be more honest. Just don't worry about it. Just go there. And so I'm grateful to her for that advice. And uh, if it works, she deserves a bunch of the credit.
0: Well, it's good advice, I think, because it really brought out, you know, the topic is interesting itself, but the way you bring your personal story and that of your family into this, in a really kind of, anyway, I thought it was a very fitting way. So, you know, well done. Um, When you live abroad, you get a perspective on your own country that's hard to get in any other way. But this book offers Australians a perspective they might not
1: otherwise appreciate. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that I was thinking about when I decided to do the book is that there are a lot of things that I think Australians sort of take for granted and just mm. accept as normal that, for me, as an American, I think can actually be pretty profound. And in some ways, they could be models for how we can all live and how other parts of Australian society can sort of tap into what, what I've sort of come to see as the best of Australian life. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the value of being an outsider is something that as a correspondent for The New York Times we think about and talk about a lot. And so, you know, my hope was that this book will offer that and both reveal Australia to itself and to the world.
0: Yeah, and Australians, I think it's fair to say, I, mean, I lived in North America for a while and um, particularly in Canada, but had a lot, I was studying there, had lots of students from the US and I did find North Americans less cynical than Australians. But I wonder what you're feeling about. Yeah, you know, I mean,
1: one of the things I write in the book is that, you know, Australians are very good at talking themselves down and talking Mm -hmm. their country down. There's sort of this (laughs) uh, and Americans are really good at talking themselves up. And both are probably a bit exaggerated Mm -hmm. in the way that they talk about their own countries. And so you kind of have to discount. American pride and sense of exceptionalism by 10 to 20%. And you probably have to discount Australians. Ah, we're just this small, unimportant country. What do we have to tell anyone? You probably have to discount that by 10 or 20% too. But, you know, there are real distinctions and differences. I mean, the two countries share a related history, obviously, but the way they've grown and developed and the, and the cultures that I think are strongest right now in this particular moment are really, really different. You know, when you look at individualism versus collective effort, when you look at you know, risk and caution, when you look at trust in the relationship to government, you know, there are very, very big differences. And I think both countries could probably learn a bit from each other.
0: Well, I think that's absolutely true. There's a, Let's talk about risk. There's a very interesting perspective here on risk. What's your sense of what Australians are like when it comes to risk compared to people in the US? Because I was a little surprised at, at your perspective on it.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of Australians are surprised. And I think that's because when we think of risk, we expect a certain level of consistency. And the reality is, whether you're an individual or a society, it's kind of all over the map. Humans are not great at assessing risk. You know, we The things that we get comfortable with, we tend to be bolder with, things that we're more distant from and more afraid of, we tend to sort of create a cycle of caution. And so... Australia has elements of society that I think are very cautious, whether it's the business world or the world of arts and culture, where they prefer big institutions, they don't want to take big risks. But then when you look at the smaller family unit community level, I think Australians are really great at embracing risk and revealing a degree of optimism about human interaction with nature, about human interaction with each other that to me is actually sort of Australia at its core, or at least at the best of itself, right? So, you know, I read a lot about the ocean, but there's also, you know, I have friends who were often telling me, oh, when I was growing up, my mother would always say, oh, just stomp on the ground to make sure the snakes go away. Or, oh, make sure you check behind the rubbish bin so there's no deadly spiders. And people just accept that this is normal. And so Mm -hmm. that creates a sort of tolerance and an acceptance of risk and and an ability to stay calm in some risky situations that I found quite remarkable and quite different from the United States where, you know, risk is all about getting famous or getting rich in the United States, but at the family and local level, it's about eliminating all danger as much as possible. And if not, it's your fault and it's all on you. And it's really a quite a different approach.
0: Yeah. This is what I found so interesting because I've always, I've felt for a long time, like we've gone a bit down that path of trying to, especially for children, trying to eliminate risk. But you were sort of identifying at least sections or parts of our community where it is, as you came in, you thought, heavens, this is really risky behaviour.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, seeing my kids thrown into this really dangerous ocean, you know, without a whole ton of experience and just with other kids their own age, I mean, they can barely tie their shoes and they're expected to sort of go in deep over their heads and and navigate these rip currents. Like it was quite frightening for me. Mm -hmm. And even just things like walking to school, walking to school as a child in Australia is still much more common here than it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that Australia is not becoming more cautious and careful. I do think that that sort of culture of safety has been transported to Australia. And, and part of what I was trying to say in this book, I think is, Hey, don't let it go too far you know, it's not best for children, it's not best for society. The anxiety rates and the depression rates in the United States among children are super, super high. And I do think it's connected to how Americans parent.
0: Mm, Fascinating. So you write about why risk is important, how it sets us up for positive engagement with many aspects of our lives. It's what you challenged your kids with when they started living here. And also you challenged yourself with it in a very significant way. How does it work though? Like what, what happens here when you kind of Push yourself to take some degree of risk, and what are the what are kind of the rewards for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think one of the really important things that comes from pushing you out of your comfort zone and taking on a risk is humility. You know, being a beginner at something, um, yeah. you know, for me in my forties or as any adult, is a reminder of how hard it is to learn new things. It makes you immediately connect with children who have to do this all the time, uh, and then I think it, you know, it puts you in a place where You're no longer believing that you're the master of every domain and that you have total control. And I think from that humility comes a level of interdependence, uh, a willingness to work with others, a, a a recognition of the need to rely on others. And so I think it actually creates both humility and community. And the more we do it, the better we get at both of those things.
0: Yes, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Now, you spent some time, you mentioned a bit of this in the book, you spent some time in Iraq during the war. I mean, that was a very risky situation. Just briefly, what was the impact of that experience on you, and especially when it comes to your kind of understanding of human nature? It must have been a pretty profound time for you.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was profound on a whole bunch of levels. I mean, the day that I arrived to be there, you know, on assignment for at least a year, there were mortar shells hitting the airport. My driver in an armored car couldn't get there, so I had to get in a car with somebody else from another media organization. You know, and right away, it was, it was confronting. But I also think that pretty quickly, I learned about just the strength of the human spirit and the, the, the matter, the amount of resilience that people can actually have. I mean, every day I woke up to car bombs. Uh, at markets. And every day, Iraqis went to the market anyways to feed their families. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things I sort of learned over time is that even in a place that's very dangerous, even the most dangerous place in the world, on any given day, most people live. And so you have reason to feel confident and you can't let fear sort of keep you from everything. And Iraqis in that really difficult time really taught me how to do that, along with photographers and other reporters who also taught me the value of, of being cautious and not being reckless, you know, risk is something that ultimately works best when there's moderation involved, not when you're pretending it doesn't exist or seeking total safety. And I think Iraq helped me find a balance between those two.
0: Yes, absolutely. Now you you, you do talk a lot in the book about risk, sometimes really being about simple acts of discomfort, like sort of social pinpricks. I think you describe it as of risk and pain, and, and it's not necessarily you know going to Iraq or skydiving or whatever.
1: Yeah, that's an important point. I mean, at various points, and Australians are really very good at this, uh, of sort of what I call positive peer pressure, (laughs) of kind of (laughs) pushing people to do things. Oh, come on, have a go. It doesn't matter. Or, you know, there's a scene in the book where I'm in the middle of Tasmania and this guy I'm writing about is insisting that I like go to his footy training. And like, I've never kicked an AFL ball in my entire life, (laughs) but, you know, he was convinced that like, ah, you'll be fine. And so getting over that fear of humiliation And accepting that there are social risks and psychological risks, I think is an important point. Getting out of your comfort zone doesn't mean you have to run marathons or climb Mount Everest. What it means is just pushing outside the places where you're most comfortable and realizing how to manage some of that fear and anxiety and that sense of risk. And then coming out the other side and realizing, oh, it's actually fine. And that's actually what helps us build confidence and keeps us calm when other crises come. If you can't sort of practice with it, then you end up being what one of the psychologists I talked to said is fragile. You end up building fragility if all you do is try to protect yourself.
0: And how's your drop punt coming along, by the way?
1: You know, by the end of that training, I felt like I was making progress mm-hmm. and, um, you know, my son tells me it's still terrible, but uh, I'd like to believe I've improved. It's all about growth. <laughs> That's good. I, um, I really love this
0: part about what you noticed about Australians. Because I think this is true too, that you, there's sort of, adult activities where you're kind of putting yourself back into a position that usually is in i think it is in the u.s mostly reserved for kids like you know baseball little leagues all that sort of stuff whereas here people are willing to go i'm going to start becoming a whatever you know afl you know i'll do afl or i'll play cricket or i'm you know i'm terrible at it
1: but it doesn't matter you, you really noticed that didn't you I did. I mean, it was striking. Not just you know, as I was trying to become a swimmer, which wasn't something I was. There were lots of other people trying to do the same thing, you know. And then I joined a basketball team, and a bunch of the guys who played had like never played in their lives. And and I just mm-hmm. can't imagine a group of American men saying, "I'm going to pick up a sport I've never played in my life and just go have fun with it." Um, and I and I had a long conversation with Angela Duckworth, who's the author of this book, Grit. And she laughed when I told her that, and she said, "You know, I wonder if Americans." sort of are constantly always looking for that productivity and sometimes they undervalue things like just benevolence or just trying things. And so, you know, I do think that there are cultural differences and, you know, Australians don't really notice that, that desire to just give it a go, but I actually think there's real value in it. I think it's actually a profound optimism and a profound willingness to sort of show your vulnerability to others that i think can be really powerful and is something that's important to model for our children you know that we we can also make mistakes and laugh at ourselves
0: yes that was a very strong part of the book this sense of the rewards to be gained by being vulnerable there's a sort of openness to you know you might it might you might lose a bit of dignity here or a bit of respect but there's something to be gained and you you went through this process in, in the surf life saving movement i don't want to give away too much of the of the story here but that was a huge for you, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, perhaps this was my Americanness. I was a bit overconfident going in thinking I'd be (laughs) fine and, uh, and got knocked back quite a bit. And I think that process of of struggle was, was quite interesting for me. And there's some, there's some funny moments too, where I'm sort of like moving closer to acceptance in this weird world of, of people who swim in very cold water and somehow find it enjoyable. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, a lot there that also comes, I think, from endurance. Like, I think sometimes like, oh, we'll try it once. But one of the things that I had to learn with my process uh, of life-saving is that it actually takes a while. And during, there's a good chunk of that time where you might not really enjoy it at -hmm. all. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we live in a world where everything is so immediate and we expect gratification so quickly. So it's important to push ourselves into places where that's not the case, where we really have to kind of sit in the Humvee, as I say, and just wait for things to kind of happen.
0: This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with New York Times Australian Bureau Chief Damien Cave, who has written about the experience of living in Australia in his book, Into the Rip. In this part of the interview, we talk about individualism, civic responsibility and the rewards of community you were struck by the strength of community especially in the surf life-saving movement where you kind of threw yourself into that and you're aware of the way that community needs to be nurtured and you you write this line you say australia has taught us something we did not know we needed how to make community a verb that was a nice line
1: yeah thanks i mean one of the things i think that's a theme of the book too is the need to focus on action and behavior as opposed to words and feelings. And I, and I kind of struggled with this as a writer, right? I mean, I'm in the communication business, but I started to wonder at some point if we we're kind of communicating too much almost or, or, or prioritizing communication over making some of these things a verb, <laughs> you know? And so to me, it, it's actually how you behave one-on-one and, you know, and life Lifesaving is one example, but there's so many others. I mean, volunteer firefighter, that spent all this time with them during the fires and seeing how that worked. And then just the culture of sort of first aid Like my my son actually broke his arm a few months ago and some complete stranger called me and said, hey, I'm with your son. He broke his arm. This is I'm a first aid trained person. I'll stay here with him until you get here. I still don't know that guy's name, but Mm. he just went out of his way and did that. And, And I've just seen that happen again and again in Australia in a way that I really appreciate.
0: Are we needing community to be a bit more of a intentional thing? It takes work, doesn't it? Community is costly. That's the other part to this, and I think people perhaps less and less want to pay that price.
1: No, that's a really good point. And and like I said, it, it it's hard. It's costly, and it takes time, and you have to push yourself to do it. But the rewards really are important. And I and I do I do think, and I worry sometimes that you know all of us as we get more comfortable in various societies lose sight of that. You know, I mean, when you look at some of these volunteer movements that started in Australia people basically decided to solve problems that, you know, the government wasn't solving that other institutions weren't solving. And there was this startup culture of civic, of civic effort and civic service. And, you know, I I do worry sometimes that that's been lost. You know, when you think of a startup now, it's always about an app or making money. Mm. And, um, you know, there are other values that are important to sort of work through. And I think one of the challenges for any society is how do you make that community a verb? How do you keep it nourished? Um, Again, I think Australia is in a better position because they are comfortable pressuring other people into doing some of these things. I mean, some of the firefighters I met told me that they had friends who actually signed them up without them knowing. And they were getting emails saying, why aren't you at training? And so, you know, that's probably a little further than I might go. And sometimes the pressure can go too far. But I do think that sometimes that's what you have to do. You know, frankly, democracy around the world is really in trouble. And I think that we all need to think about what we can do to keep it strong.
0: Yes. And this, this um, willingness to let go of some degree of this focus on individualism and what we perceive to be freedom, you know, endless sort of choice, that hasn't helped served us necessarily well.
1: No, exactly. And, and, and you got to find some way to sort of turn that off sometimes and to just accept that you are interconnected. And, you know, my hope is that the pandemic in some ways has helped people understand that, that the actions of one affect many. One of the things I read about in the book is the difference, too, between the U.S. and the Australian response. And one of the things I heard Australians say all the time in terms of why they're wearing masks or why they were being careful is, you know, I don't want to be the one that lets everyone down. And I'll be honest, that's not a phrase I heard from any of my American friends. And so, you know, that that suggests an epidemiological view of who we are, that we're connected to others. And that's a really positive thing, I think.
0: Yeah. Now, you, you quote a bit from Martin Seligman. And talk about, there's a point there that I noticed where he writes about spiritual furniture, which was an important idea. And and in his description, he was meaning things like families, close friends, institutions, things that we retreat to when things are difficult. I wonder what you make, though, of actual spiritual institutions, like the church. That's fallen away in the West to some degree, to some large degree, actually. Might that be Contributing to some of the challenges we have, where we not we don't have any more this kind of foundation on which to build a life that that might be coming to play here somewhat.
1: No, absolutely. I I think churches and and you know faiths are very important in this degree and in part. There's something about the sort of regularity of it, right? Whether it's you know Fridays for nights for Islam and prayers or Sunday for Christianity, that idea of seeing people again and again and 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 that sort of just like routine of it, I think is actually really important. And because you don't know when you're going to need your spiritual furniture, you know, and so sometimes you need to maintain it. And I think what Marty was kind of saying is that the end point of a focus on individualism is actually isolation. And that's not a place that we want to be. And so we have to figure out ways to offset that. And, you know, I think churches can play a very important role in that, especially if they can find a way to tap into that, that need and be explicit about it. I think, you know, some churches are better than others at that, but I absolutely think that it's an important thing. And, and, and to some degree, the whole history of risk is about humanity stepping away from religion and trying to figure out how to maintain community and deal with uncertainties and hazards as trust in the sort of religious viewpoint starts to fade. And so um, they're very inter- interrelated. You
0: know, I, I, when, as you're saying that, I wonder whether... The person of faith, say, is able to embrace risk because of the perspective they have on life and eternity. So in a sense, you could both hold on to life as a precious thing, but also not hold on to it too tightly because you have this sort of broader perspective that's necessarily limited by a more materialistic or naturalistic view of the world.
1: Now, that's a really good point. Um I wish I'd thought of that. I could have put it in the book. Uh, (laughs) But no, I think you're right. I mean, I think that figuring out a way to sort of keep your life in perspective is kind of what I was arguing for. And, you know, Blaise Pascal, who is one of the sort of first risk researchers, who was also, you know, a very devout Christian who sort of struggled with finding the balance between reason and faith, Mm. you know, writes about that a lot. And one of the lines I have in the book that I still really hold on to is he talks about humanity's place in the universe as being, you know, somewhere in the middle. We are something, but we are not all. Said. And so, you know, I think that faith and churches do a pretty good job of helping us remember that. And other institutions can do that too. But basically, we need to find some way to keep our individualism and ourselves in perspective. And whatever way you can do it is important.
0: Now, you experienced a version of quite closed minded Christianity, as you describe. But I wonder what impact that had on you.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was challenging impact. Unfortunately, the timing was that my generally Catholic parents became very very evangelical right as I was hitting my teenage years so there was a bit of conflict of timing there I'd gone from like a pretty free-range do-what-you-want childhood to a suddenly you know very extreme mm. all music is bad you can't hang out with people who aren't Christian you know very extreme point of view. My, you know my parents and I have talked about it they agree that it was you know far too intense and went too far in the beginning you know all converts are a bit zealous. Yeah. So, right. you know, I've forgiven them and we're I still love them and it's fine. But <laughs> um, but I do think that there's the, the risk with faith sometimes is that it leads to an assumption of knowing best for others. And it doesn't allow people to sort of develop their own sort of path forward. And, and sometimes I, I think sometimes I think faiths can actually look at risk in the wrong way and that they assume that someone who's not doing exactly what they're doing is taking a risk with their life and their soul. And then there's a projection of, of righteousness on top of that person that I think sometimes can cause more damage than than benefits.
0: That's mm, an interesting warning, really, isn't it? Now, you talk about gaining a new perspective, not just on risk, but work, family, friends, those sorts of things. But how different is setting yourself big challenges to overcome in the surf club, say, any different from just measuring your success by your work achievements, which you kind of Tried to get away from a bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that maybe this is just me coming from an American perspective, but I feel like work has become the idol that far too many people are worshiping at. <laughs> and, yes. you know, anything that becomes an obsession to too much of a degree can create problems. And what I sort of found is that to be a fuller human, sometimes you need to step away from that cycle of seeking just personal and professional achievement. And, and so for me, that's what I sort of needed. I needed some balance, I needed to be rounded out. But the other thing I think is important is that it allows you to connect with people on a way that even if you disagree with them, you can still find points of connection. And so, you know, I, I think especially in the United States, but increasingly in Australia too, we become so divided and, and judge people by one thing and one thing maybe that we disagree with. But if anything you, you can do, if you, if you have a shared mission, then suddenly your political differences, your you know, age, your racial background, all of those things start to be suppressed in service of the mission. And I think that there's enormous value in that in terms of holding a society together. And while work can do that, the mission of work is often you know to make money. And I, I think that sort of setting out a goal that doesn't have something to do specifically with personal achievement or wealth can be beneficial for a society.
0: And you discovered lots of things about yourself with this experience of living here in Australia and really literally diving into to what that's like. Um, one of them was that you felt like you were happy to be less selfish. Like you came across selfless, more selfless. That seems like a really significant, great thing.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. And it, it, you know, like, I think, especially in New York, you're measured by how busy you are. And, and so canceling plans is a sign of, oh, I'm just so busy at work. And I, <laughs> I'm just so important. And it would take three or four or five tries to actually get together with friends in New York because everybody was so important and so busy. And at some point I started to just think, well, one, this isn't actually good for any of us. Like we know that friendships and, and social connections help make us happy and content. But I also started to think that, you know what? Actually, at the end of the day, this is, this is selfishness. This isn't actually being there for friends, you know, like what if this person who I'm canceling on actually is something they really need to talk about? And, mm. and so the more I started to do it in Australia, in part, because Australians were doing it for us, the more I started to see the benefits of those small moments and, and the sort of connections that kind of emerge and those small kindnesses that suddenly start to become more routine. And the truth is, it makes you a happier person when that's a regular part of your routine.
0: Well, perhaps one last one. I wonder having Had this experience living now for a number of years in Australia. What do you most miss about the US?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I do miss the surprising, unpredictable nature of America. You know, whether it's New York City or, you know, other parts of the country, there's just a never ending possibility of surprise. (laughs) Um, I often describe the United States to Australians as, as a place that's always been about extremes from its founding to revolution to civil war. And most of the time, those extremes scare me, especially at this point in my life. And we're looking at where things are at in the United States. But I do think there's almost this sort of combustibility of American life that I do miss. Um, So, you know, it's great to visit. Uh, I don't know if I need to live there anytime soon.
0: (laughs) Well, Damien Cave, it's really lovely to talk to you. The book is Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American. It's a really good read. brings up some really important things. It's a great perspective you've brought to it and a lot of fun actually to read it. So thanks so much for talking with us today about
1: it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the deep discussion.
0: This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Thanks so much to Damien Cave, who is the New York Times Bureau Chief in Australia and the author of Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American. This is Recommended Reading. Please do leave us a rating or review. It helps others find us and gets more people in on the conversation of life and faith. Next week. What does this mean now that all of these things that make up who I am and the arts and all of the arts industry shutting down and all of these things that make me who I am and not being able to do them, what does that
1: look like for me and who I am? And I guess that was really a big part of kind of the consideration of doing what we're doing now.